Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. I've said here a thousand times over the, on uh, the first week of July will be our 18th anniversary here. I don't know how many, I need to do the math on how many Sundays that is and special services and Wednesday nights and whatnot, how many times I've had the, the honor of standing before you. Um, but uh, all, all, of, all, all of those times that I've done that, I've, I've always been aware that that God is in the room, and you come to these moments when He shows up and just stirs, stirs your heart. And um, as I come to this morning and the Sunday after Easter, I'm living in the reflection of that, and, and I thought maybe I'd start a series that lands in Pentecost Sunday. If you're not familiar with Scripture, that is probably the next significant event after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It happened about 50 days later. Um, and the Holy Spirit would fall and take up residence in the life of people. On that Pentecost Sunday would be the point at which the, the prophet, uh, the prophet's words that was, uh, that was shared, uh, came to reality. And those words are, God said, there's coming a day when I will write my word on their hearts and not on tablets of stone. 2 Corinthians 3 tells us that that work is done by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is writing it on our heart or the implicit message of that passage. Is it not wonderful to know that God no longer desires for his message to be written in inanimate stone or paper or books, but he wants to write his living word on our heart? And as I come to these moments, that's my prayer. Father, in this engagement, write your word on our heart, make it living, make it alive. And, and I, I probably referenced that reality more than any others. Um, I, as I came, I thought maybe we'll start a series that, that is um, I, from the tomb, the gloom, and the upper room. <laughs> and I thought that would be fun, tracing all of the lives that after the resurrection that were disillusioned and uncertain, and how in those 50 days, what he preached exclusively was the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And that, see, when we say that, we think we know what those words mean, but very often we don't because of, again, contemporary context. We really have little notion, especially in the United States of America, of what it means to live in a kingdom. We live in a democracy. And, uh, and, and so we have to work to sort of get our mind there. And I've been wrestling with all of this, but as I've prayed, and come around uh, several times on this. Uh, three weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, there was a teaching that we entitled Shameless. And it dealt with the reality of, 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 of us being adequate or us being sufficient. And so I wanted to pick that up. But as I began to trace the steps of that reality, uh, there was something else that happened. And, and, and amazingly, um, I tell you this, you know, often I, at this point in in my life, and I love having the the honor every week of uh, of talking to pastors, and um, and it usually <laughs> with pastors it usually happens somewhere between Wednesday and Sunday morning, 
as was the case this morning when I was wrestling with these things and a pastor said, uh, uh, can you tell me the difference between regret and shame? And I said, from a biblical and functional standpoint, they are sort of reciprocally intertwined. That you, you don't get to shame without regret. But you can stop regret from becoming shame by one word, confession. Confession is the word in the New Testament. It literally means to say the same thing as. So confession, we tend to think, confession in a narrow sense, is just coming and telling God all the bad stuff about me. And by the way, articulating where we have departed from the path of righteousness and embraced sin. And by the way, for 18 years, uh, we have embraced a journey of essentially defining about 20 words. Sin is one of those words. A working definition for sin is this. It is finding identity, my identity and worth, any place other than God. I want to say that again. Finding my identity and worth any place other than God, and I can add to that, and his word. Now, we live in a day where everything is about identity, gender identity, racial identity, ethnic identity. These words uh, such as intersectionality um, come to, I mean, these are huge right now and loom large, but can I just simply testify that this is the definition that I've been saying for about 30 years. I didn't invent it to address the latest surge of, uh, of, of whatever by culture. But it's important that we get that. Sin is seeking my identity and worth any place other than God and his word. Would you uh, attempt that right now and say it to somebody? Sin is seeking to find my identity and worth any place other than God. You take your best version of that statement and turn and tell that to the person next to you. You have 10 seconds. Here we go. Go. Okay. Now, that's an important thing where regret turns to shame. Shame is the sense of I'm not enough. And as we talked about several weeks ago, shame, uh, the the closing word of Genesis chapter 2 is an important word because God at that point has just finished completing the only perfected worship environment on this planet, the only perfect one on this planet. Since mankind would crash and burn, Adam and Eve, humankind, would crash and burn and fall. By the way, if you're new to faith, read Romans 5. Find some different translations. The uh, Romans 5 is probably one of the best single samplings or summary of the story of God with humanity. Now, right there, just in one chapter, about 21, 22 verses. Romans 5, read that when you go home, read it from several different translations. But what happens is the first Adam, it says, he sinned and death entered and all this bad stuff began to happen. But at the end of chapter 2, when I say the only perfect worship environment, that is what I mean is the only source where mankind would go day to day to day, according to Scripture, was straight to God. There was no other voice. There was no other distraction. And then in the opening of chapter 3, it says, now the serpent. There are no three words probably a symbol 
that just shakes everything on this planet. Now the serpent. The book of Romans would, excuse me, Revelation would tell us who this was. He said, that serpent of old, comma, the devil. Now, the final and closing word of Genesis chapter 2 is unashamed or shameless. He said that he created this, this place for mankind to exist, and it was this environment, it said, where they were naked and not ashamed. When you go to chapter 3 of Genesis, and this story enters, the serpent slithers in. He says to the woman, now they, they were together, but he says to the woman, you can draw whatever inference you want. I think some really bad theology has come from overplaying that. But he said to the woman, he said, look at this fruit here of this tree. Uh, he said, is it true that God's told you not to eat of any tree? Well, there's one tree. That, he was, that they were told not to eat from the knowledge of good and evil. And so they engage this whole conversation, and he says, you know, God knows that when you do this, there's something good. Talk about the goodness of God. There's something good that would come to you, and he's trying to deprive you of good stuff. Did you know that echoes in our soul? On every person, every person, because we get it, we are all created after the fall. After the fall. The fall is the term used in the Bible. Mankind fell from the grace and glory and presence of God. So there was the, that's the phrase that's used. I'm deeply aware this morning, for whatever reason, of, of, of people in the room that may have very little or no knowledge of Scripture at all. So I'm, I'm wanting to tell you that story. <clears throat> Ever since the fall, certain things were stamped on our DNA. Because prior to the fall, there was no such thing as shame insecurity, suspicion, all of that came after the fall. There was no such thing in, as one gender seeking to dominate the other. That's all the product of the fall. In the first two chapters, it said God created a man and woman and said, let them rule over all the things of the earth. But after they fought the fall, Genesis 3:16 about through 23 you see what they do is they turn that to one another and each seeks to dominate the other. That's significant. how many know I've just described mm, the graceless state of marriage. <laughs> you can laugh, it's okay. Who's going to win? Who's going to dominate? My point the point being is that in the first two chapters there is this pure and unbroken encounter with God, we would learn in chapter 3 that it was a daily ritual for the presence of God. I believe the Father, Son, and Spirit would show up and, 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 and meet them and once again transform them to this, this ever-evolving sense of glory. And it's so powerful to read that. I love the story of Scripture. But when we leave this, that pure worship environment, is broken. The final key, the final capstone statement, it says they were naked and not ashamed. As you enter Genesis chapter 3, when God shows up to have a conversation with them, there are three words. I tell you these often. You need to have them burned on your brain because these three words are at the core of every problem you will encounter in life, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your thinking, in your relationship to God, I believe, and, and I'm not one that offers 
cliche, simplified summaries of complex realities of living this life. How many know life is complex? How many know the situations to you are unique? They are. But here's what's behind it. Deception. God says, what's happened here? And they answered, we were deceived, we were afraid, and so we hid. Okay? We were deceived, we were afraid, and so we hid. They covered themselves, and God asked a question that's never answered, but it's implied. He said, we were, we were naked. He said, who told you you were naked? Now, that's an important statement because you see the word shame does not appear in that list of deceived, fearful, and hiding. Would everyone say deceived, afraid, and hiding? Deceived, afraid, and hiding. Now, I want you to turn and point at the person next to you, which is rude in the South. But I want you to turn and look them in the face because this is truth. They said the source of every problem you'll face is deceived, afraid, and hiding. Turn and preach the gospel to them. Now, I've taught about those words at great length. What happens when they hide, they hid with fig leaves and covered themselves to cover their nakedness. And God says, who told you you were naked? And the reason that question is important is because the closing language of Genesis 2 is they were naked and not ashamed. And while shame doesn't appear in Genesis 3, there's this little grammatical or grammar term called an ellipsis. An ellipsis is very similar to where if you look at the moon, although I think spelled differently, if you look at the moon at night and you see just a sliver of the moon, and they call it an elliptical reality, you just see that little portion of the moon, but you know all the rest of it's there. Everybody get that? All you see is that one little sliver, but you know it's there. The rest of that circle is out there. We just can't see it. In the same fashion, the, 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 the phrase ellipsis means that you say something, like if I were to say, um, Brenda is going to the grocery store. She will drive there. She will pick up whatever it is, bread and milk and whatnot, and she will come back home. You won't ask me, okay, you said Brenda, and then you said three. She, you said she three times. Who is she? You won't ask that question. You know who she is. In grammar, that's an elliptical statement. And, and I know that you may sound like, dude, what are you doing is giving us a grammar lesson? Because reading scripture is important. When he said in verse, chapter 2, verse 25, that they were naked and not ashamed, it said that they, and so they didn't have to hide. When he said we were, decept, we're, we were deceived, afraid, and were hiding, and because we were naked, he said, who told you you were naked? There is implied, I believe, it, right in between there is shame. 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 I like the writer Brene Brown's definition of shame because it tends to land really within the biblical narrative. And it's the sense that I'm not enough. Now, back to regret turning to shame. Regret turning to shame. When we hold regret, in other words, regret that we messed up, that we crashed and burned, when we hold regret and then fail to come to God, in other words, we run away and hide in our own little fear and deception, oh my goodness, rather than just coming to God, stepping up. 
I want to ask this question, which I've asked on a number of occasions. I've already mentioned Romans 5. It's a great thing to read because it said the first Adam did this, and then a second Adam came, Jesus Christ, and he didn't fail where the first one did. Here's a fun supposition. If the second Adam did what the first Adam didn't, could the first Adam have done what the second Adam did? I want to say it again. If the second Adam, Jesus Christ, did what the first one didn't, namely die for the sins of his bride, according to Ephesians, then it may be fair to surmise that the first Adam could have done what the second one did. What would that have looked like when the woman partook of the fruit, Eve, but she'd be named later, but Eve partook of the fruit that they told him not to, and all of a sudden, as we understand, that glory of God that enshrouded him perhaps departed. What if Adam would have looked in the first one and said, there's something wrong here? And she said, here, take, take, take a taste, you know, here. No, there's, there's something that's happened, sweetheart. I don't know what it is, but you've changed, and there's something. And he, and he would step back away from that. Then later in that scenario, God would come in the garden and, and, and meet, and, and they wouldn't be hiding. Only one of them would be. It would be her. But Adam by himself perhaps would step up alone, and God would say, where, where, where is Isha? That was her name prior to Genesis 3. Where's Isha? And Ish Adam would say, God, Father, something happened. What happened, son? Well, she partook of that, of that, you know, that tree that you said we shouldn't partake of. Uh, she didn't go to the tree of, she, of life. She, she partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Something happened to her. And God would have said what he said in Romans 5. He says, son, Death has now entered. You see, death is not just the ceasing of anatomical or physiological function where my heart stops or my brain activity stops. That's how we call, the doctors will say, we gotta call it at this time that the heart stopped and brain functionality has stopped and that's death. Now, that's dying in the physical sense, but death in the biggest animated sense, death is separateness from God. Death is that eternal state. Um, Why did Jesus go to conquer death, hell, and the grave? Death has the capacity to separate us from God and for all eternity. But what would have happened when God said to Adam, but she's death now has entered and she's begun that step of death to be separate. And Adam, having no knowledge of what death would have been, he would have said, but Father, death what is death? I've said a thousand times, well, I haven't said a thousand times. I'm, in the last five years, I've said it uh, because it just was a reality that hit me that, that we grieve. I grieve over my mom because in the, in the, you, I, I know where she is. As a matter of fact, somebody said, I'm sorry for your tragedy, and I wasn't being cliche. It was a person close enough that I could offer that answer, and I said, you know what? This is not a tragedy. The tragedy is growing up with a mom who may have been mean-spirited, abusive, abandoning, when, when there's this potential that should have been realized. I said, but there's no tragedy. Or, or that my mom lived a life so depraved and departed from God that I don't know where she went, and maybe there's a good chance she went to hell. That's a tragedy. But to live 95 years on this earth 
Teach your children to love God, worship him, invite his presence above all else and pray, and then die and go to be with the Lord. There's no tragedy there. There's grief, but there's no tragedy there. Anybody get what I'm saying? You know what? That's a good place for, yeah, that right there. I need to do that. Hallelujah. That is no tragedy. I said, I know exactly where she is, but stamped on human DNA is this deep awareness. Mankind was never created to die, ever. They were created to live eternally. And in fact, when we're born again, that's when John says, now you've started eternal life now. Hallelujah. We've started eternal life now. We still live forever with him when we return and accept him as our savior. But here's Adam in front of God saying, but, but what is death? And, and God would have then had to explain to Adam something he knew nothing about. Well, death is, is ultimately, she won't exist anymore. And even worse than that, she'll be potentially separated from me forever. And, and Adam, untouched by sin, would have perhaps responded back and said, Father, what can be done? And, and the father would look back and said, well, son, one has to die in her place. It requires a pure sacrifice where sin has not entered and death has not touched. You see, I'm telling you the story of resurrection. Why do you think it was so important that he overcame death? See, the resurrection is fixing the problem of Genesis 3. You get that? That God turns and looks death in the face and said, it stops now. You don't think he said that? He does say that. When John sees him in an encounter in Revelation chapter 1, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am him who is, who was, and is to come. I am him who was alive, then dead, now I'm alive again, and I'll never die again. I am alive forevermore. Death has been vanquished. I have the keys, what does he say? To death, hell, and the grave. That's Bible, Revelation chapter one. So there will still be grief because on our DNA, we know there's this created part of us that fights against uh, the corruption of sin that knows we shouldn't die. I can know where she is, you can know where your precious loved ones are, and there will still be grief. Moses, uh, uh, Adam would look back at the father. The father would say it requires a, a sinless sacrifice, one to die in her place. And you see, we learned of the intellect of Adam. When you see him just before Eve or Isha is created, he names every creature. So the intellect of uh, this glorified intellect was massive, but still there were areas of knowledge that he did not know. The serpent said, there's some you need to know about. And God says, there's some things that you won't know. You won't know about death because death, you are not created to ever die. So God has to describe that to them and say, the, the only way she can be brought back or redeemed is if one dies in her place. And in a flash, it hits him. Father, there's only one here that can die. You see, because we already learned that none of the animals would do. And then I believe he pauses and reflects. 
But Father, if I am to die, what's next? He says, well, death has not touched you. So you will be resurrected. But Father, will death be painful? Yes, son, it will. It, Lord, is, is death going to cause me? Watch what happens in Gethsemane. My soul is deeply sorrowful. Jesus is praying right before he's crucified, grieved unto the point of death. One version says that he prayed with intensity until his sweat became drops of blood. But it's there that on his knees before the Father, he wrestles with it, and he wrestles, and he wrestles. And I believe those words would have come out of the mouth of the first Adam, where Adam looks up and says, Father, this whole death thing I've only heard right now. I don't know what it means or what the pain will be involved or, or the reality that will come about. But Father, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting in you. And Lord, I love her so much that you created for me that Father, I, I don't want this, but not my will, but thine be done. And as scripture says, it pleased the Father, strange words, to crucify the Son. And he would have reached out, touched Adam. Adam would have fallen in death. I don't know if there, what agony may have been involved. It's open to speculation, but he would have immediately sprung back to life because death could not hold him. Death had never touched him. And so he fixes the problem. He fixes the problem. He fixes the problem of regret that hands us to shame and we can't escape. So this morning as I was reflecting, the pastor was texting with me and I enjoyed it. Let me see the scripture I want to read to you. Hang on. Let me just give you this. Why? Oh. <laughs> I'm laughing. Let me see what time I got here. Okay. I'm doing good. Cracker Bell will still be there for us. For 18 years here and, and 20 before that. The recurring central scripture for me is John chapter four. And I'm just gonna give you a sampling of what happens and where, where our regret becomes shame and shame that holds us in its grip. The problem for mankind is they leave the Garden of Eden hidden and God sends one full of grace and truth and the word truth means to unhide. Go through your Bibles, digitally or paper Bibles, and highlight any place you find truth and just have, for the fun of it, stick in there, unhide. It's, it's a blast all the way through the Bible, especially the New Testament, and the book of John even more so. But he meets this woman who, has, who clearly is held in the grip of regret of being divorced by five husbands and the one she's meeting, the living with, she's not married to. Jesus addresses that. But in this dialogue, she's living so in the grip of shame, regret that has become shame and holds her. She comes in the middle of the day. Again, you've heard this, but for those of you that are new, she comes in the middle of the day where typically women in the Near Eastern ancient culture would go in the morning or the evening, and the evening, both, to get water. They would get water for their cooking, for drinking, for, for watering animals, whatever. But that would happen in early in the morning and in the evening. No one went during the middle of the day, but this woman went there, and the implicit message is she didn't want to show up where anybody else was because of the shame. 
In the middle of that discourse, this is the passage of scripture that tells us about worship. We're the only place in the Bible where God in the flesh tells us what worship is. And he says is to worship is to worship in spirit and in truth, in unhiddenness. We step out of our hiding place. Earlier in that passage, uh, I think it's in verse 12, Amanda, John chapter 4, this discourse is going on, and there are six or eight problems that this woman has in encountering Jesus, and she rattles them off. What are you doing talking to me? You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan, and there's a ton of background to that that goes back five or 600 years where the Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans because they treated them, and forgive this ugly statement, of, of half-breed, being half-breeds, the Jews that stayed in the area uh, uh, even after they were conquered and shipped away six or 700 years earlier, and it was the Jews who stayed in the area, and they intermingled with the marauders that came uh, to dominate the area. And so the Jews looked at these people as, as just despicable, again, forgive the ugly word, half-breeds, that had corrupted their lineage, and they wanted nothing to do with them there was a temple built in Samaria as a, a supposed alternate for the one that was in Jerusalem. And so she engages this whole dialogue, but there are five or six different issues that she has a problem with. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. You're a man, I'm a woman. We shouldn't be talking. And he said, if you knew, verse 12 says this. Uh, excuse me, is it, it's not verse 12. Is I've given you the wrong verse, Amanda, my bad. Uh, I think it's right before it. I'm going from memory here. Hang on one second. Verse 10. You got, you beat me to it. I love Amanda. Watch this. Jesus answered and said, if you knew, everybody say, if you knew. Now watch. Do you understand that that's the answer to the problem of Genesis 3? Because the serpent slithered in and said, if you knew. But it was a corrupted if you knew. But here the son of God shows up to a woman that's already living on the dark side of the wrong, if you knew. Life had given her a knowledge and a reality that she didn't want to know and that she was ashamed she ever came to know. And so in this conversation, he says, give me a drink of water. And she says, why are you asking me for that? And he says, you know, if you, if you knew the gift of God and it, it, who it is says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. If you knew. Then two verses later, she asks this question, and it's there that I want to land and pray. <clears throat> because it has to do with an articulated grip of shame that holds us. In verse 12, she asks this question. You're not greater than our father Jacob. Remember, he's just said in verse 10, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you living water. And she said, how can you even get that, bro? You don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get water out of the well? He goes, no, living water it doesn't come. And she says, I want this water. That's the verses in between. And it says, she, but after this, but she says, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? He's the guy who dug the well, who gave us this well and drank of it himself, his sons and his cattle. Beloved, please hear me. There will not a day go by where the adversary doesn't approach you and we, with a new situation, a new problem, a new issue in life where there is not the echo in the back of our mind. I wonder if I can get through this, but the ultimate question is we're saying in the face of God, God, I'm sure hoping that you're greater than this most recent moment that has found me. I hope you're greater than that. 
Because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm deceived, I'm fearful, I'm hiding, I don't want to stay here. I hope you're greater than that. But John isn't done using this phrase some 30 or 35 years later. This is the gospel of John, and after the historical reality of this, he would write the epistles, the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we find in one of those letters, 1st John 3, um, thank you, the... Um, Watch this language that he uses. We will know by this that we are of the truth. See, this is one of those places. We will know by this that we are unhidden. Now, what's the problem? When we hide, we run away from God. Beloved, listen to me. Is it not wonderful to know that God is willing to have a conversation with us while we're hiding? Somebody say amen to that. And we learn that in Genesis chapter 3. When God shows up, they're hiding. And do you get the, the understanding that they're hiding the whole time from God? And God says, why are you hiding? And they do the discourse I just told you. And they have this discourse, and there's never any indication that they stepped out of hiding. Never any indication. You know, we could fairly say, how many know God wouldn't have been a bad God if he'd have said, look, look, listen, if you're not going to talk to me face to face then I'm over this, but he doesn't do that. He's not like us. God is on this side of the equation saying, I'm willing to start a conversation with you any place you'll start it with me. And my goal is not to expose you. I already know everything I need to know about your sin. My goal is to reveal to you who I am because where you are right now, you can't see me for all that I am. I know you for all that you are, all the good, the ugly, and the bad, but that won't be fixed until you see me for all that I am. Everybody get that? God says, I know you for everything that you are. There's not a new piece of information. God's not saying, would, would, would you please step out from there so I can understand your problem? No. God knows everything. We need to get that. We need to get that. That there's a God says, you need to come out of hiding because until you see me, you won't be able to erase what's currently holding you in this grip. John's not done with those words, I believe, 30 years later when he picks up this phrase, when he says, you will know by this that we are of the unhiddenness. What is that? And we will and will assure. Everybody say assure. Do you know that word literally means persuade? Go fact check that. Watch how this reads. We will know that we are of the unhiddenness and will persuade our heart before him. Beloved, do you know that you're involved in a battle of persuading your own heart? Psalm 62 starts off, I'm pretty sure it's Psalm 62. David is writing, and he says, Father, my soul waits in silence for you alone, and there's this thing. By the time you get down to verse six or seven, it looks at a glance like he's repeating verses one and two, but he's not. Because after he makes this declaration, verses five and six come somewhere around there, and he says, my soul, no, he says, soul, wait in silence. Beloved, there will come moments in our life when we're gonna have to decide whose voice, what voice we will listen to. There are moments that you're gonna have to stand in front of the mirror of God's word in James, in front of the mirror of God's glory in 2 Corinthians 3. Stand in front of that mirror, look yourself in the face and say, soul, you shut up, shut up, shut up, you've spoken long enough. Let's keep reading. Go back, please, if you will, to the next verse, Amanda. In whatever our heart condemns us. That's my heart talking. 
For God, here comes, you remember that? You remember, remember, remember this phrase? Watch, 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 okay? She says, uh, are you greater than our father, Jacob? But there's a bigger implied statement there. Are you greater than everything I've known that's brought me to this moment of despair and devastation? Are you greater than everything that's resulted in me being handed off five times by five men and then being forced to live beyond that if there's any other horrible situation <clears throat> to be taken by a man who refuses to give me his name and his home and now I'm just there living under the scrutiny and shame of the place I live in every day. Everybody get that? Beloved, Hell doesn't need to talk to us very long because the truth of the matter is that pretty soon our heart becomes so conditioned by this Stockholm syndrome of brokenness. Hell doesn't need to show up. We stand up every day and the most destructive voice we listen to is the one that's already been imprinted on our own heart. You can't do that. You can't live for God. You can't know joy. You can't get past the failure failures. You can't, you can't see, even when our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. That's where shame dies. Shame dies the moment that I decide. God's talking to me. Shame dies the moment I, I peek out because you see, this happens in this narrative. When Jesus turns and flips it and he says, go get your husband. And she looks out and says, I don't have a husband. And in that verse, he says, this you have said correctly. I don't have a husband. He said, this you have said truly. What did he do? He says, sweetheart, you've just taken the first step out of hiding. You've taken the first step out of hiding by articulating that shame to me. She wouldn't have told anybody, I, I don't have a husband. Indeed, you've had five and the one you're living with now. She, oh. You, do we get that? Do we get that God didn't just learn of that from words from her mouth? Do we get that the whole time he was having this conversation, he knew everything about her. And he was willing to have a conversation. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> she drops her water bottle, runs into the town, and I can't make a big enough deal about this, and says the absolute worst words she should have ever said. She goes running back into town, into the town square where the men would be and the people who looked down on her. And she says, come see a man. How many know those aren't words this shame-ridden woman would ever want to say again? And they're looking at each other saying, <clears throat> number seven. <laughs> come on. But she does not care because she suddenly found the only voice that matters and she's discovered before she ever peeked out from her hiding place, he already knew it. Can you get that awakening? Can we get that this morning? That God invites us to step out and the moment she begins to confess, say what it is that God knew already about her, things begin to shift, things begin to change. 
that that voice that had condemned her began to be persuaded. It began to be persuaded by a loving father, by a God who was present, a God that in fact was greater than anything she had experienced and now even greater than her own heart that condemned her. John doesn't mention her in the letters, but it's my suspicion that as he writes that same phrase, he's saying, I can think back to the day when this actually happened. A woman so held in the grip of her own failure, things that maybe she was and was not responsible for, that she didn't need anybody else to tell her how bad and shameful she was. She knew it to the point that she avoided everybody would go to the well in the middle of the day just so as not to be seen. And there she met a savior. Stand to your feet, please. Transparent moment, as if I haven't been enough already. Two weeks ago, I've been so burdened about the voice of the gospel in the church being conditioned by the values of culture. And you've heard me say a hundred times that the greatest tragedy of the voice of culture is they simply try to offer redemption without the need of a redeemer. You can't bypass that. You can't get there. You can't get there. We need a redeemer. Good news is we have one. And I was telling him my concerns that culture was now so influencing the church that allegedly the correct and acceptable churches are the ones who say, all you need is love, all you need is love, we're just going to love you, we're not going to tell you to change, you can come as you are, whatever your identity and worth may be found in, that's fine, and beloved, it's not fine, because if it's fine, that means transformation is nothing. God didn't leave us in our state when he met us, we were saved, born again, brought out of the kingdom of darkness, placed in the kingdom of light. And I'm sharing this, and I said... And you can go back and review the, the, the teaching from about four weeks ago where I talked about a God of holy and a God of love and you can't separate one from the other or God's not God. You got to go find another one in some other book in some other place. Love meets me where I am. Holy takes me where I need to go. I since have a hypothesis I wasn't prepared to launch out there, but I think I can stand it. We'll see. You know, it's just for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Paul would write, the same spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. So we have the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. I'm going to talk about this next week. Only one member of the Trinity gets that name in front of it. Holy. Here we believe holy means whole, complete, lacking nothing. That's the biblical definition of the term, not wanting. It is the spirit of wholeness that lives within you. God was very specific. He didn't just say spirit of God. He named it the Holy Spirit for a reason. The Holy Spirit that can make you whole. Now, this is what we're going to pick up next week. Is the spirit that lives in you. Is that not good news? Somebody shout amen. amen. The spirit that can make you whole. Well, here's something I'll come back to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love brought him to the planet. Love created the opportunity to encounter you, Sean. Love created an intersection of need where God would meet you. Love meets me where I am, but holy takes me where I need to go. 
Praise God. Love put Jesus on the cross, but holy brought him out of the tomb. Can somebody hear me this morning? I'll unpack that next week. Love drove him to the cross to be nailed. But it was a Holy Spirit. <laughs> Whoo! Love is the God that meets you in the brokenness and says, please, come out from there. But thank God it's holy the moment you peek out from behind that that reaches out and takes you by the hand and say, now, let's go explore this transformation. I'm praying with this PhD professor. He's an Old Testament genius, but an amazing, uh, or and an amazing, amazingly spiritual man. I said, brother, would you pray for me for your hang up? I don't ask that a lot. <laughs> two weeks ago, actually a little over two weeks ago, it was right before mom left the world. He began to pray immediately. There were tears. I could hear it in his voice. He says, father, I thank you for my brother. And as we have occasion to encounter God's word, that the way we just share this and it awakens things. And I thank you for Tom. He paused for a moment. I could hear the sniffs and understood. And he prayed this prayer. Nobody's ever prayed this prayer. He says, Father, he wants to know holy. Let him know holy. Woo! Instantly, this has not happened five times in my life. I can name two others, so I'm saying five. While he's still praying, I whisper, I pull the mic away, and I say, Father, I want that. I want to know holy. And God responds back to me and says, I know it was the Holy Spirit, by the way, and I'm not saying God responds like I have a face-to-face encounter. These are rare moments, exceedingly rare, but I knew it was the Lord, that voice banging in my head. He said, are you willing to pay the price? Sacrifice. I knew it wasn't one of those religious things. Are you willing to pay the price? You know, with booming voice. I knew that's not where God was headed. I sensed it. I felt it. I knew that wasn't judgmental, condemning, or whatever. And then he said, then this phrase came out of nowhere without any connectedness because it's God, you know, sort of dropping those. And and when he does it, these thoughts go, you know, and they just bam. Are you willing to pay the price? And before I could respond, God said, how long will you keep listening to his voice? and not mine. And then he says, I'll fill in the blanks. And then came the statement, I can't give you any more holy until you use what I've given you. It does no good to give you any more. You can't absorb it, you can't take. I began to weep, because I knew the voice he was talking about. At 63 years old, was the voice of that Cub Scout leader at nine years old. It told me I wasn't enough, that I was damaged. And the reason that he molested me for a year is because there was something broken in me. Don't tell your parents, they'll put you in a mental institution. That voice doesn't predominate my thoughts at every decision, but there still is a, there still was a discernible echo. At that moment, I began to weep and I said, Father, I want to know holy. I want your voice to be final. I am so tired of the echo of that voice. This man's been dead for seven years. I just found out a couple of months ago because I wanted to go find him, take his hand, and look him in the face and say, I forgive you. I forgive you. Because see, none of that part really bothers me. But the residual echo of the serpent from the garden 
forgive me for picking on you, baby, but Jessica, you got to quit listening to that voice because for every opportunity that's been put in front of you outside these walls, you say, but I, I'm, I, that's not me. I can't do that. I can't do that. You got to stop that because there's an amazing deposit of grace in you and you stand in front of the mirror and don't see it yourself and God's screaming from the other side of that magic mirror saying, hey, hey, wait, wait, wrong image. Now I'm picking on her, but it's true of us in this room. You can't know holy (laughs) until you allow the Holy Spirit to be the final word in your life. Shame just goes away. The not enoughness evaporates. Bow your heads, please. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.